Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's my kid's dentist. He's a national speaker and expert on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning. And one of my kids was a patient really liked uh, the way that Invisalign worked. You can learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Leslie Massey Farmers Insurance, to Sprouse Schrader Smith, Attorneys at Law. They're online at sprousselaw.com, to Street Toyota, which you can find at streettoyota.com, and to Barnes Jewelry online at barnesjewelry.com. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm, the digital reader. It's super intuitive. I really like it. Uh, you can read that at brickandelm.com or go buy a print magazine. Today's guest is Tack Buchanan, and before I introduce him, I want to provide a trigger warning for listeners. This episode contains discussions of violence and sexual violence against women, so if you need to skip this one, please do. If you're in need of support, I want to point you to my friends at Family Support Services, which helps victims of sexual assault. You can find them online at fss-ama.org. That's fss-ama.org. So TAC Buchanan is the regional coordinator for Bridges to Life. It's a faith-based nonprofit that works within the prison system to enhance public safety by reducing recidivism among offenders. And TAC himself has a pretty incredible story. For one thing, he struggled with addiction for most of his adult life. He was badly hurt in a car accident. He lost his wife in 1998 in a home invasion when an invader raped and killed her. And Tack's desire to avenge his wife's death resulted in him going to prison himself. And that's where his life began to change. So this is a hard story, but it's one with a hopeful outcome. And he walks me through the entirety of it in today's episode. So here's Tack Buchanan. Tack Buchanan, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I, I know a little bit about your story, but I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this area in the first place? I was born here. Were you? I was. I've lived here my entire life. Okay. Do you know why your family was here? Did Have they been here a long time? or My grandmother actually lived in Canyon. That's where my dad was from in my... Uh, my mother was from Hollis, Oklahoma. Okay. And I think she met my dad. They were both going to WT, and they got married and stayed here in Amarillo. Okay. What part of town did you grow up in? I grew up out on Camp Lane, the south side of town, out by Farmers. Right, Out yeah. by Trinity Fellowship, that area there. Gene Howe area. I went to Gene Howe okay. as a kid. Yes, yeah. yeah. Where'd you go to high school? I went to high school at Randall. All right. I actually went to Canyon, and then they built Randall. So While you to, were... In yes, I went to Randall period. the year that it was open, All right. and then I was the second graduating class. Okay, cool. That was a unique experience to have yes, a sir. brand new school. Yes, one sir. of the first Canyon ISD yes, high schools in Amarillo, I guess. Yes, sir. Did you know, once you were you know thinking about graduating, leaving Randall, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? 
Well, when I graduated school, I actually moved to Dallas to go to art school. So I wanted to be an artist, and I didn't graduate. I wound up coming back to Amarillo. But okay. I've worked in sign shops and, you know, done graphics, you know, most of my life. Okay. When you came back to Amarillo, what kind of career did you have? I um, My dad was a bar owner. Right. And I actually went to work for my dad in bars. Okay. What bars did he own? Oh, man. The first one he owned was Costa del Sol back in the late 70s, okay. early 80s. And the last one, he, he died of cirrhosis of the liver at 56. That's a wow. part of part of being a bar owner. I guess so. And man. the last one that he owned when he passed was the Club 26. Okay. And uh, But he was part owner of Rumors and Calcutta. Just bought, That's just the life I was raising him. Is that something that you thought you might end up doing? I mean, was that part of a plan or was that just kind of a, a fallback? Well, it was uh, that wasn't any part of the plan. It was that was just a wild part of my life. Okay. I, mean, I was I don't think I had much direction back then when I was young. I mean, you know, life was all about partying and working in bars and I'm sure we'll get into more of that here in just a minute. Well, I mean, it it makes it easy when that's part of your upbringing. You know, a lot of kids. Oh yeah. You know, they they want to hide that stuff from your parents, and if you know, owning a bar is like what you've known as a child, then it 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 kind of becomes this is what our family does. I mean, it is. I didn't have to hide it. I did it with them. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Not my mom. My mom was my mom was pretty straight laced. It was my dad that was the you know big partier. Okay. Tell me about the art side. Did did you try, you said you worked in some sign shops. Did you try to find a career that allowed you to do some of that creative expression? Or You know, I was actually in a car wreck when I was 14, and I laid in the hospital for a year and a half. Wow, that it, long. It, it, it killed a girl that was with us. It was a bad, real bad deal. But I went back, that's why the right side of my face is paralyzed. Okay. I went back to school in a wheelchair, and I couldn't, I played football before, and when I got hurt, I couldn't play football anymore. So they said, you can either sit in the library for a period or you can take art. <laughs> so uh, I wound up taking art and, uh, you know, I fell in love with it and went to college. But uh, uh, having that background growing up in the bars, I thought, you know, it was more fun to party in Dallas, Texas than it was mm-hmm. to do homework. So I, I wound up dropping out of school and coming back. Okay. Were you ever one of those kids who thought, I'm going to go to school and then escape Amarillo. I mean, did did you ever have a plan that you were going to leave here, or did you always think oh, I might end up back in this area? Yeah, I think when you're young, you always have the escape plan to get out of Amarillo, and, and I did. I was planning on staying in Dallas, but you know the way that the, the way that it fell, I wound up mm-hmm. having to come back. Do you want to talk about the the impact of that wreck? You know, that's a man. That happening when you're a teenager, being yeah. a teenager is hard enough anyway. And yeah. then having that sort of personal trauma, emotional trauma, like what was that like for you? Well, when I give my testimony in the prisons or in churches, it usually takes about an hour to do the whole thing because <laughs> I get pretty detailed about my life. But I'll, I'll just skip through some of the highlights. With that car wreck, I am, um, you know, I was raised in that lifestyle of partying and, you know, we were all. I had to go to summer school because I thought, you know, it was more fun partying than doing homework. So mm-hmm. the last day of summer school, we went to Canyon to have a party. And uh, we were all drinking and getting high. And uh, my brother showed up, and he he was actually driving the car. And he, he was sober, but uh, we were just going too fast. You know, he just got his driver's license. He was only 16. And uh, we were late. I was supposed to be home. So we were trying to hurry up and get home. And mm-hmm. 
I don't know if we had a blowout or what, but we wound up hitting the median at over 100 miles an hour. Wow. In uh, right below Buffalo Hills in Canyon. And we flipped the car a whole bunch of times. There was five of us, and we all got ejected from the car, except for the young lady that lost her life. She stayed in the car. And the car landed on top of me upside down. And it shattered most of my skull, broke my leg in half, and the, broke my femur, and, hmm. and it broke my back. I had to spend the next year and a half in the hospital. And um, I've had operations that have straightened my face out. Yeah. Before those operations, I looked like a stroke victim. My face was paralyzed, so I had to talk out of the side of my mouth like this, and I had no control over my right eye. And that dealt a pretty heavy blow to mm-hmm. the ego of a young, sure. young man. You know, before that, I played football and, you know, I was – had a bunch of friends. I was pretty popular in school. And that all changed when I went back to school a year and a half later. Well, I was going to say, for one thing, you just missed a lot of time. I missed a lot available. of time. I was in the hospital for so long, and then they had to homeschool me for a little while. So okay. I missed about two years. And then um, when I did go back to school, it, it hurt. You know, it hurt my pride. It hurt my ego of a young man. So the way that I dealt with that, instead of just straightening my life out or having a relationship with Christ, I just went wild. I, uh, I grew my hair out real long and took on this real biker, you know, heavy metal mentality back in the 80s. But it just, I was just wild, just out of control. And that that's what I thrived on. I was, <laughs> a, I was the type of person that I didn't slow down. I didn't stop. I sped up. Okay. You know, because life hurt, so I started self-medicating sure. at a very, very young age. How how long did that last for you? Oh. I mean, it, it sounds like it went into adulthood. Oh, it went way into adulthood. I... Uh, I gave my life to Christ sitting in the penitentiary when I was 33 years old. Hmm. So that went from childhood till I was about 33, 34 years old. Okay. What what brought you to the penitentiary? What brought me to the penitentiary? I am. Um, my I told you my dad died of cirrhosis of the liver, and about a year later, I was married. I married a, a bartender that worked for my dad, and we uh, we just lived that she was a bartender, and I was. You know, she was a cocktail waitress. I was a bartender, a DJ, and so life was just party every night. Sure. And then my dad passed, and um, I told her, I said, we need to straighten our lives up. You know, I just watched alcoholism kill my father. It was involved in that car wreck I was in. I mean, every fight we ever had, we'd been drinking. You know, when we were sober, we'd get along fine. And I told her we need to straighten up, and she agreed. And um, we quit working in the bars, and things started we started to change our lives. You know, we started being parents to our daughter and things were really going good. And then on June 8th of 1998, a 19-year-old transient from Florida, he was hitchhiking to California. He um, broke into my house. He was actually living in Elwood Park, homeless. And Hmm. we lived over off 11th Street and we lived in an apartment that was off of the street. And I think that's why he targeted our house because it was the furthest off the street. And he knocked on the door. She was in the shower. She didn't answer the door. And he thought no one was home. So he went around around back and broke in. And um, in his confession, he said that he was just trying to get food and thought the house was empty. And um, she was in the shower, so she didn't answer. And he walked up. He was looking through the crack of the door. And uh, she was in there bathing. He was in my house for over half an hour, and she never even knew it. Wow. And then he decided that he wanted to rape her. And she fought him, and so he beat her real bad and then tried to rape her again, and she still tried to crawl away from him, and he choked her to death, and then he raped her after she was dead and burned my house down. Wow. And 
I didn't handle that well, especially. I mean, well, I mean who would? But uh, I didn't handle that well because of the lifestyle that I led my whole life. You know, I talked about self-medicating after that car wreck. We did try to straighten up, but after going through that, I just went downhill. Hmm. And uh, I got strung out on drugs. And then they caught this kid. It took him a couple of months to catch him. And when they caught him, they had him at Potter County Jail. And in my mind, you know, doing drugs and drinking all the time, I thought the only way that I could stand up for my wife's honor, you took everything from me, I'm going to take everything from you. And I became obsessed with revenge. Okay. And I'm not a violent person, but that pushed me to a limit that I've never seen before. So I became obsessed with revenge and actually got myself thrown in jail on purpose with the intention. Because he was there? Because he was there. And I had the intentions of ending this man's life. Wow. And um, they actually put me in an eight-man tank, and I shared my story with seven other men, and I got them just as mad as I was. I mean, I was going to kill this guy. I now had backup to get it done. And we actually figured out what pod he was in, and we started making a plan. I mean, we were going we were going to get him. And thank God I didn't pull it off, or I'd still be sitting in prison. Um, yeah. But um, I, I don't know if the officers looked at the newspaper and just figured out who I was, or somebody snitched us off. But they they figured out who I was, and they said you can't even be in the same yeah, I was gonna facility. Say, if they knew, they would not. Yeah. Have so put they you in. they actually uh, I got kicked out of jail. They actually moved me to Randall County. They said you can't be in Potter County Jail. Hmm. And I got out, and I got probation on a drug charge. That's how I got myself arrested on purpose. And um, I got four years deferred probation, and he went to court, and he got the death penalty. Yeah. And I thought that would make me feel better, but it didn't didn't bring her back. It didn't take my pain away. It didn't, didn't quench my thirst for revenge. It didn't take away my addiction. And I just kept doing what I was doing. I started failing UAs at probation. And those people tried to help me. And, you know, I know guys that have been locked up for failing one UA. I failed like 11. And um, they knew what I'd been through, and they were trying to help me. But there was no help in me. I was so angry and so full of hate, and and there was just no getting through to me. And then by fluke, I got pulled over one day, and they searched me and found another bag of meth in my pocket. So that revoked my probation, and they sent me to prison. So that's how I wound up. In okay. Prison. When when was that last prison sentence? Then uh, two thousand two is when I got sentenced, and they sent me to a safe P unit. Okay. That stands for a substance abuse felony punishment facility. It, it's prison rehab. It's what it is. All right. When you get there, you have to write an autobiography about your life and turn it in so the counselors know how to deal with you. Mm-hmm. But uh, you had you had a story. I did. To tell I did. For sure. Whenever I finished the biography. I wrote the state of Texas sentenced this man to death, and I said five minutes later I'll be dead too so I can follow him to hell and spend my eternity killing him. It's what I wrote. Wow. And I, I wrote killing him again and again and again for three pages front and back. You know, I was venting on paper. This is my mm-hmm. first day in prison, and they they want to know my story. And the more I wrote, the madder I got, and the madder I got, the stupider I wrote. And I turned that in. And the next day they came and they uh, – they arrested me in prison. You know, they chained me up and handcuffed me. I said, what are we doing? They said that the sergeant wants to see you. And they took me to the sergeant's office, and she had that biography. And uh, she said, first thing she said is everything you wrote true. And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. And she said, well, with this whole following him to hell and spending your eternity killing him, we're a little concerned that you may be a threat to the other inmates. 
And I, I said, I'm not a threat to these guys. If you put him in, he's on death row. I said, if you put him in here, I'd be a big threat to him, but I'm not a threat to anybody else. So she finally took my chains off, and she said, um, I want you to see the unit psychologist. And at Safe P, you have counseling and AA and NA and all this cognitive stuff that you have to go right. through in prison. And I said, put me in regular prison and just let me do my time. I said, I don't want to, I'm not going to talk about my dead wife. Just let me do my time in regular prison. And the way Safe P works, you get a sentence and you go through the one-year program and you do the rest of your time on probation. So I got a 10-year sentence. So I would do one year in Safe P and then nine years on probation. All right. And if you mess up, you get your full sentence. Sure. So uh, she said, I want you to see the psychologist. So I went to the psychologist and I told him, I said, I can't do this Safe P. I'm not going to go through all this, you know, cognitive and I'm not going to take these classes and talk about my issues. And he said, I'll tell you what's going to happen. He said, you're going to sign this piece of paper, then I'm going to sign this piece of paper, and they're going to come arrest you and take you back to the county jail. And then when the bed comes open, you're going to go to the Monford unit in Lubbock, which is a psychiatric ward, and you're going to do your whole 10 years. Or you can take this one-year program. So, you know, when you get faced with a choice like that, yeah. you're not quite as crazy as you think you are. So, uh, so I said, I'll do your program. So I wasn't happy about it, but I, I stayed at Safe P. And I went back in there and told the sergeant, said, um, I'll take your program. And she said, I want you to see the chaplain. And there's a, there's a lot of people that tried to lead me to Christ before I got locked up. And I had so much anger. Mm -hmm. I had no one left to blame but God. You know, God, how could you let this happen to me? And I hated God. And I, that's just how I dealt. I would get borderline violent with people that would try to lead me to the Lord. You know, get out of here with that stuff is how I felt. Now I'm in prison, and this sergeant is telling me I have to go talk to the chaplain. So I don't have a choice. I can't throw my little temper tantrum like I used to in the world. So I went to talk to this chaplain, and uh, he said, what can I do for you? And I had that biography. I was like, read this, and I threw it on his desk, just bad attitude. And uh, he said, that's their stuff, and pointed at that sergeant. He said, what can I do for you? I said, all right, man, I'll play your game. And uh, I started telling him this story. And every third word started with F. I wasn't saved. I was just puking hatred on this man's desk. I was so mad. And I never looked up. But I'll tell you what, I never cried. I had it instilled in me, suck it up, boy. Men don't cry from the mm -hmm. time that I was a little kid. And that's the biggest lie that Satan's ever told. Because whenever we don't know how to cry, we don't know how to grieve, we as men, we bottle it up. And we get angry and we get addicted or we wind up in prison. But um, I never cried. And I'm just looking at the ground, talking about my wife. And I look up at this chaplain, and he's crying. I mean, he was taking my pain for me. And he said, can I pray for you? And I said, you know what, man? I said, I've never talked about it. It felt good to talk about this. Thanks for listening to me. But I don't have anything for your blanking God. And I got up, and I walked out of his office. And the next day, I get a lay-in. That's in prison. It's like a hall pass. You get a report here. And I get a lay-in report to the chaplain's office, and he's talking to me about grace and mercy. And he says, can I pray for you? No, man, just leave me alone. Next day I get a lay-in. This man called for me every day. I cussed him, and I cussed his God, and he kept calling for me. When I looked in the mirror, I saw angry, hate-filled, drug addict, bad dad, you name it, whatever negative was looking at me in that mirror. And this chaplain saw Christ in me, and he did not give up. I cussed him, and I cussed his God. And he called for me every day. And then um, I finally I finally started going to this church service. I thought, you know what? I've, 
I've tried everything else. I'll give this Jesus thing a chance. Mm-hmm. And I went to his church service, and I don't even remember what he was preaching about, but it was just hitting me between the eyes, every word out of his mouth. And he said, if you don't know Christ, you know, stand up. And uh, everything in me said, don't stand up, but I just did. And I got saved. I gave my life to Christ that day. And does that make me perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, we're never perfect till we get there. But I know now that if I have a bad day, I don't have to give it to Jim Beam. I can give it to Jesus yeah. Christ. I don't have to give it to a meth pipe. I can give it to my Messiah. You know, I, I've got people at the church, people that volunteer with me. If I'm having a bad day, they'll lift me up, not going, hey, sorry about your troubles. Just keep on drinking. You know, so, so I changed my life that day. And um, he started talking to me about forgiveness because um, I got angry with the, my dad because my dad, you know, I went to church with my mom when I was a little kid, but my dad pulled me out of the church whenever he, my parents divorced and I would go spend Sundays with him at the bar. So I, got, I thought, man, I've known Christ my whole life. This is my dad's fault. And then uh, he started talking to me about forgiveness. He said, you got to forgive your brother that was driving that car. And I didn't have any ill will towards my brother. We just didn't have a whole lot to do with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I forgave him. And, you know, he did time, too, over DWIs, and he gave his life to Christ. Stone Cold Sober, 20-something years now. He's on the prophetic team at church. He volunteers with me and bridges to life. And me and my brother are close now. And then um, he says, you got to forgive yourself. And that was a hard one. Yeah. It, was, it was another inmate that helped me with that. This inmate says, uh, you can't forgive yourself. You know, my daughter, her, she was nine years old when her mother got murdered, and I chose prison. You don't get thrown in prison. You choose prison. Yeah. You make a choice. And I chose drugs over my daughter when she needed me most, and I got put in prison. And I said, how can I forgive myself? And this inmate said, uh, well, you're saved. I said, well, I am, man. I gave my life to Christ. And he goes, but you can't forgive yourself. I said, no, I've just caused too much pain. When she needed me, I came to prison. And he goes, so let me tell you something. See that guy over there? Is he forgiven? Well, yeah, man, if he gets saved and repents, and sure he is. Well, that guy over there, is he forgiven? Yeah, if he gets saved and repents, and sure he is. He goes, but you can't forgive yourself. And I said, no, I can't. I've caused too much pain. He goes, let me tell you something. You know what you're doing? You're standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus Christ, saying, Jesus, you did enough for him, and Jesus, you did enough for him, but you didn't do enough for me. So why don't you get a hammer and pull those nails out and go do a couple of more miracles just so tackle have enough faith to believe what your word says. And I'll tell you what, anybody out there, if you're having trouble with forgiving yourself, chew on that one all night long, and you'll wake up with a whole new attitude. I did. And I said, you're right. And I forgave myself. And that's when I could be a dad. That's when I could be a, a husband, a father, everything that Satan says I couldn't be when I forgave myself. That's when I realized I can be what God's calling me to be. And then um, Chaplin told me, you got to forgive the man that murdered your wife. And that was a hard one. Yeah. And it took a, took a lot of prayer. I would start praying for him, and I would get mad. I would get mad at God. God, how can you forgive this guy? And it was a process. It wasn't a, anybody that says forgiveness is a one and done. Sure. No, that's a, it's a process. And I finally came to the realization that forgiveness doesn't mean it's all right, you killed my wife. I'm not forgiving that. Forgiveness means I'm not carrying this burden anymore. I'm not going to be full of hate. I'm not going to be full of anger because of something that somebody else did. And I forgave him, and I let that go. And then um, I get out of prison. I start rebuilding my life. What year was that that you got out? I got out in 2003. Okay. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. 
and I get out and I start rebuilding my life. I go to work for Trinity Fellowship. I go to work for Triple A Signs. I worked for those guys for years, and um, just started rebuilding my life. Got remarried, and everything's going great. And then in 2008, I get a phone call from the state of Texas and said, uh, "We're fixing to execute the man that murdered your wife. Do you want to come?" And I thought, man, if I've truly accepted Christ, is it all right for me to condone the state of Texas taking somebody else's life? But nothing I can do to change it. So yeah. uh, I decided to go to his uh, execution, but I went with the heart of forgiveness, not a heart of vengeance. That's a decision that whether you take vengeance or forgiveness out of it, that's a decision a lot of people in your position might not have made. Like they don't want to see him again, or they don't want to force themselves to relive it in that real tangible way. Um, Did you think about, should I even go or not, regardless of the mindset behind it? Well, I did. And I I went and did a lot of counseling at the church. And then, uh, you know, I read a bunch of scriptures. and and, But that's when I decided that I would go to this, but I would go with the heart of forgiveness. And and I went. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all day process. But whenever you get there to the actual execution chamber, they walk you in there, and there's a curtain, and they open that curtain, and he's laying there. He's laying on that that gurney, those leather straps, you know, mm-hmm. IVs hanging out of his arms, and he's got a microphone above his above his mouth, and he won't look at me. I mean, I'm right there on the other side of the glass, and he won't look at me. I know he can see me out of the corner of his eye, and he's got a warden at his head and a chaplain at his foot, and the chaplain's praying, and the warden says, "Do you have a final statement?" And he said, yes, sir, I do. And I'll read you what he said. He said, uh, Warden, do you have a final statement? Yes, sir, I do. And the warden says, go ahead. He says, first of all, I want to thank God for the love. Thank God for the love from the family and friends that I have. To God, I give the glory through the years. I love and care about the Lord. The Lord knows that I've prayed for my victim's family. I know you all probably have bitterness and hate for what I did. There's not a day goes by that I've not prayed for Ronnie Don Buchanan and her daughter who was left behind. I pray to God, the Lord Almighty, that like he did for me, he will reach out and help you. I just pray that the Lord takes away your bitterness. There's so much hurt that I've caused you all. On the phone, I talked to my family for two hours. It was hard to see such a big man break down and cry like a little baby. He's talking about his dad. I mean, mm-hmm. could you imagine watching your son get... But, um, He said, I hope this will touch your hearts like you have touched mine. I know it is hard for you all. I am to blame for this. I will take that, Lord, when I get there. Back in 2003, I want to tell you this. I got down on my knees. The Lord knew my heart. I wanted to kill myself. God helped me to forgive myself and move on. I just pray that someday you will find forgiveness in your heart. Know that your loved one is in a good place. And then he turned his head and he looked me dead in the eye on the other side of that glass. And he said, can you forgive me? And all I could do was nod my head. I didn't have a microphone, Hmm. but I nodded my head yes. And he looked up and said, I'm ready. And I watched that man go to heaven. And I know in the depths of my soul that I will spend eternity with the man that raped and murdered my wife because of his repentance and my forgiveness. He'd gone through a similar journey, you know, of, of faith. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible story. How does that impact you on the other side of that and, and seeing, knowing what you went through, knowing what he went through, having that connection at the end of his life? What do you do with that? Well, I do bridge his life. <laughs> I guess that's a pretty good I mean, segue. That, that, I mean, that's, that's, is that what led you into that well, organization? Or 
Uh, well, there, there, for years after I got out of prison, there's a lot of people that said you need to do prison ministry. Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I've been to prison. I said, thank God for the people that came and ministered. You're me. not going to volunteer to go yeah, back. Yeah, but I'm right? not going back in there. I mean, well, I, I went to Haiti after the earthquakes. Mm -hmm. I went to New Orleans after the year. I said, that's my mission work. I said, I'm not going back in those prisons. But you know what? Those prisons are the biggest mission filter is, and they're local. You don't have to travel across the world to go yeah. to them. But um, I finally said, you know what? I was, I felt God calling me to do prison ministry. So you know what I did? I went out to Randall County Jail, and I talked my way into there with the chaplain and the sheriff. They needed people to go out there. And you know what I would do? Like, you know what the daily bread is, that yeah. little ministry packet? Right. I would sit out in the parking lot and read the daily bread, and I would go in and talk about what I read to anybody that would come to the day room. And it was the worst prison ministry that I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. And I did that for two years. I, okay. was, I was trying to be obedient. I didn't know what I was doing. I just I was just trying to make a difference. And then I found out about Kairos. And Kairos is an awesome prison ministry. I absolutely love that program. And I worked with them for about five years. And then um, I was running the Bethesda Outreach Center for Trinity Fellowship Church. That was my job. And... This one of my volunteers said, hey, this lady I worked with, son, just got out of prison. Will you talk to him? <laughs> Did you do prison ministry? Yeah. I said, yeah, I told him. And I think it was a divine appointment for me, not for him. Because he came out and he was telling me about this Bridges to Life program. And he said, I can never hurt another individual after, because we bring in victims of violent crime. Mm -hmm. And he said, after seeing what I did face to face, he said, I could never hurt another person. I said, they bring in victims? And he said, yeah. And I said, man, that sounds incredible. So uh, I emailed, I had a testimony of me speaking at Family Life Fellowship down on Hillside. And um, I had that DVD, and I looked up Bridges to Life online. And uh, I've been reading about this program. They bring in victims of violent crime. The, the guys have to take ownership. The inmates have to tell their testimony. You know, um, in, in other ministries, you know, in a nutshell, they say, hey, we love you. We're here to show you Christ. We don't care what you did. Yeah. We're bridges to life. Hey, we love you. We're here to show you Christ. But we're going to talk about what you did. We're going to figure out why you did it. You're going to take accountability. Instead of hiding from the stuff, we bring it all to the surface. And I thought, man, this sounds amazing. So I sent that DVD to the to the founder, John Sage. And the, I never heard from him. And it was about six, seven months later, I get an email and he says, I finally watched your video. He said, I get videos all the time. I usually just throw them away. But I watched yours, and he said, you're right in the middle of the bullseye of what Bridges Life was, is all about. He said, if you can get it going in, at the Clements Unit, you know, round up enough volunteers, we'll talk about, you know, expansion. And I did. I rounded up. And most of the volunteers that were with me, I've been doing this 11 years, are still volunteering. <laughs> you know, somebody volunteers for a decade, and they believe yeah, in what we in. do. But um, I got it going at Clements, and he said, let's go to Neil unit. So I got it at Neil, and he said, I'll give you part-time work. So I went to the church, and I love Trinity Fellowship. That's my church. I was working for them, but uh, they said they needed somebody full-time at this position. So I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and turn in my two weeks because this is what God's calling me to do. And he said, if we get another prison, I'll put you to work full-time. So now I'm doing Clements, Neil, Tulia, Jordan, and Pampa, Dalhart, Roach, and Childress, okay. um, Lubbock, Wheeler, Formby, Plainview. I've got it's about a, 70, 80 it's people. It's a big by. region. Oh, yeah, yeah. I do a lot of traveling. Yeah. I've got about 70 or 80 people volunteering with me, and it's just an amazing program.
Tell me how your story, your personal story, I know you've got volunteers that, that do a lot of the work, but how does your story resonate with the inmates who, you know, are, are, are having to reckon with, you know, the impact of what they've done too? I think it gives them hope that they can be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of them think, man, if that guy went through all that and, you know, changed his life, I can change my life too. I mean, it's just a good example that, you know, our program is 14 weeks long. The first seven weeks, we focus on accountability and responsibility, open their eyes to the impact crime has on society, get them thinking about their families, things like that. And then the second seven weeks, we shift towards faith-based side with weeks on repentance, confession, forgiveness. In weeks two, three, five, and seven, we bring in victims of violent crime. Mm -hmm. And there's people that make my story sound like a walk through the park that they get up and share these stories. And these guys start thinking, man, if they can do that in front of all of us, you know, I can start to open up. And once you start opening up, you get that stuff off your chest. And our executive director, his, his sister got murdered. Uh, they stabbed her 90-something times, still recovered, just stupid, senseless crime. And um, he almost lost his wife because his wife was best friends with his sister. And... He started going off the deep end, not to the extreme that I did, but he started going off the deep end a little bit. And she said, you need to do something about this. I didn't just lose my best friend. Now I'm losing my husband. And uh, there was a program called Sycamore Tree back then, and they would bring in victims of violent crime. And they asked John to come give his testimony. And th that program, they would basically bring in victims. And then the next week they would get together and, talk about the victims, and it was trying to make them feel guilty so they didn't commit mm -hmm. crime anymore. There was no healing aspect to it. Okay. But he said that he saw the impact of sharing his story and said we need to add to this. So that's when he added the healing side of it, the forgiveness, the repentance, the confession. And uh, he thought, man, if I, can, if I can help two or 300 inmates and help some victims of crime, that all this effort will be worth it. And that was in 1998. They did the first program at the Darrington Unit in Houston, Texas. And we are now in every single prison in Texas. We're in 10 other states, three different countries. We've graduated 80,000 offenders through this program. Wow, okay. we, um, we're recognized by the parole board. I mean, the parole board will ask you if you've been through our program. I mean, we, we've yeah, made that big. Because they've seen the life change, the they results. Have, they have. You know, we make that big of an impact in the system, so... The last question I want to ask you to, to wrap up this section is, you know, your, the, the hardest parts of your life, the accident, your own struggles with addiction, with the law, the murder of your wife, like all that took place in Amarillo. It did. And a lot of people would have been, this place is no good for me. I'm out of here. I'm going to go restart my life, you know, someplace else. Yeah. You've ended up here. You've stayed here. It's the it's the home base for the ministry you do. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that. Like, what has kept you in this area despite everything that's attached to it for you? You know, after that crime happened, then I was gung ho that I was leaving this town and never looking back. I mean, everywhere I looked was painful. Mm -hmm. But then I shifted my focus, and it's not painful. It's good memories now. Big thing that made me say, I told my boss that, uh, hey, if a job ever came open in San Antonio or somewhere, then I'd move there and be the regional coordinator there. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know too many people in Amarillo. You know, we do a fundraiser here. It, it, you know, we, this is a nonprofit. Yeah. So we have to raise money to keep it going. And they do a fundraiser in Houston. And uh, this is funny. When, uh, when I hired on, 
my boss, John Sage, our executive founder, he asked me to come speak at his fundraiser, and he's, and it's a big deal. I mean, they've raised a lot of money. And uh, I told him, I said, I want to do one of these in Amarillo. Can you imagine how Houston looks at Amarillo? Probably like Amarillo looks at Tulia or something. Sure. And he goes, do you think you can do it? Man, go ahead. And we've got it broken down to you know our budget that there's 18 different regions in Texas, and it costs so much money to keep each region going. And it all comes out of Houston. And you know what? I raised enough money to keep Amarillo going by itself. Hmm. So they can take that money that was coming to Amarillo and expand even somewhere else. Yeah. And it's it's the people in Amarillo. The people in Amarillo are so giving and they have such a heart for not just what we do, but nonprofits all over. I mean, there's so many nonprofits that do great work in Amarillo, and it's the people in Amarillo that keep it all going. The two things that people always tell me is that I'm a strong man for going through this and being able to stay here and change and do what I do. And no, I'm not. I'm a I'm a weak man. I'm a drug addict, alcoholic that wound up in TDCJ. It's Jesus Christ who's the strength that gives me the strength to do what I do. It's nothing that I've done. And people always ask me, how can you relive this story again and again? Because yeah. I'll speak in front of you know, 60, 70 inmates at a time. I, I, I tell the story a good 20, 30 times a year. And people say, how can you relive that again and again? Well, I'm not focusing on the bad. I'm focusing on the healing. And I can stand there in front of a room full of inmates. And as far as I'm concerned, she just showed up and spoke healing to a room full of people. She didn't die in vain. Even all these years later, she's still speaking healing into many, many lives. And God's given me everything back that I lost. I'm remarried to a wonderful woman. All the things that I've been through, they're bringing healing to other people. This episode is supported by attorney Dean Boyd, and I've got a personal story to go along with it. My son Owen was in a pretty bad wreck at Texas A&M right after we dropped him off for his sophomore year of college. It wasn't Owen's fault, but he got broadsided by another driver and it rolled his car. Owen climbed out the sunroof. He walked away from it, which I'm so grateful for, but his car was totaled and Owen was left with a shoulder injury. So one of our first calls was to Dean Boyd's office. Dean had been a guest on this podcast back in 2019. I knew his story, but it wasn't until Owen became a client that we really understood what he does and how meaningful it is. So working with Dean's office was amazing. They treated Owen right. They answered our questions. They made the whole process seamless. And they were able to negotiate a settlement that covered our son's medical bills and satisfied all of us. And so for us as parents, Dean's office was a lifeline during a really stressful period. So I can't say enough good things about the law office of attorney Dean Boyd. If you've been hurt in a wreck, call him at 806-242-3333 or visit deanboyd.com. This episode is also supported by Leslie Massey, who is a farmer's insurance agent here in Amarillo. And she's also a past guest on the podcast. You might have heard Leslie interviewed on this show back in September of last year, about a year ago. She's known for her personal customer service for going the extra mile to walk customers through the claims process. Her agency also gets recognized for community involvement. Leslie works really hard to build relationships with clients, with their families, with their businesses and more. And I know this because the magazine I co-own, Brick and Elm, is one of Leslie's insurance clients. So to learn more, contact Farmers Insurance Agent Leslie Massey at 806-352-7388. That's 806-352-7388. 
Okay, I'm back with TAC Buchanan. TAC, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. Mm-hmm. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes Pioneer Town, a hands-on exhibit that allows visitors to experience what a late 19th century village would have looked like, including a church, a saloon, and a jail. I know all three of those are, are part of your story, so <laughs> that feels appropriate. You can learn more at uh, panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I love to see Amarillo growing. You know, when I've lived here my whole life, and I'm 51 years old, and our population has doubled. I mean, when I was a kid, it was in the 90,000, and now it's almost 200,000. So so I love seeing Amarillo grow. I love to see that it's getting big enough that we're starting to get some, you know, restaurants and stuff here that you usually see in other cities. But I also hope that it doesn't grow so big that it becomes a major city that it always stays with that small town feel. Right. Yeah. Maintains the character that Absolutely. we love of Amarillo. Absolutely. And I love the Panhandle Plains Museum. That's cool that you were talking about that. Yeah. I, I've been pumping water out of that hand well there since I was a little kid. And oh, still yeah. There. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I can't think of anything that there's really too much of. Maybe maybe too many yummy Mexican food restaurants, so I could lose a few pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of us, um, yeah, probably struggle with that. Okay, what does this area not have enough of? Concerts. Yeah. When I was a kid, I used to go to a concert once or twice a month here, and I don't know why. In the last couple of decades, you have to go to Lubbock or Dallas to see a concert anymore. So, I hope that we do keep growing enough that uh. You know, some major band. I love music, and I hope some major bands start taking recognition of that and coming yeah. back to Amarillo like well, they used to. As I understand it, they want to come back. It's it's the lack of facilities for the It is play. the lack so of facilities. So the, the Civic Center issue and mm-hmm. uh, all that kind of stuff is we're on their radar, and they want to stop here. They just have not been able to. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I hope that's an issue that can get resolved yeah, in, absolutely. in the future. Okay, what's your favorite local coffee shop? My favorite local coffee shop, I'll tell you what, I'm kind of a coffee snob. I grind my own beans, okay. so I guess sitting in my living room is my favorite coffee okay. shop. But uh, I guess if we're just looking for a plug for Amarillo businesses, I buy my beans at United, and it's called Jet Fuel, and it's made right. in Texas. So that's some great coffee. I know that coffee. I've had it before. Do you? It's I like really it. good. Yeah, It is good. Okay, what's your favorite local restaurant? Favorite local? Is there a category or just in general? You know, you can decide the category. <laughs> if, if you need to qualify what's your favorite Tex-Mex or something like that, you can. But You know, I think Leal's, me and my wife, used to keep the electric paid there because yeah. we would eat there three or four times a week probably. We loved it that much, and, of course, it shut down in COVID and never mm-hmm. came back. Which um, I guess you could go to Muleshoe and well, I do. I do a program in Plainview, so I stop off there every once in a while and mm-hmm. eat when I'm in Plainview. But um, I guess as far as Mexican food goes, I really like Abuelos. Okay, which that's a really good date night. You know, it's a more more high end thing if you want to get dressed up and go out and have some fun with your spouse or something. But uh, just some good old Mexican food, La Frontera over yeah. off Tenth Street. That's good. Mexican really food. good place. Absolutely. Okay. Other than your own nonprofit, what's one other local nonprofit you appreciate? The Turn Center. Yeah. I absolutely love the Turn Center. My uh, my wife works for the Turn Center. Okay. She's actually a occupational therapy assistant there. And uh, every year I've gone to their fundraiser, and, man, it's just, just to see what they do, the way that they help those kids. Yep. It's just 
I mean, I can't even wrap my head around yeah. it. And it's impacting kids from all over the panhandle. Oh, absolutely. It's not just Amarillo. Absolutely. You know what I do in the prisons? You know, in a nutshell, I can go, hey, man, quit being an idiot. And they can go, light bulb comes on and they quit being an idiot, you know, to go there. And just to see the way that they help those kids that don't have a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. It's just, it takes a special group of people to do what they do. Yeah. And I absolutely love it. I love the turn center. Okay. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? You know, me and my wife rode my Harley out there probably, it was probably before COVID, but okay. just a few years ago. I think it was on our anniversary. We just rode out there and spray painted the car. Yeah. Yeah. It's an experience that not everybody in Amarillo has had. I mean, no, I, yeah. I found, but I'm glad that, that you were able to do that. Okay. Last question is what's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? I think Palomar Canyon, man, okay. that place is awesome. And I know it, it gets a lot of recognition. I mean, there's people from all over the world that come to see Texas, but some of my coworkers, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have a conference call and I'll mention Paladar Canyon and they live in Texas. They've never even heard of it. Wow. So, yeah, I think Paladar Canyon is just an amazing thing and more people need to go there. Okay. Cool. I agree. Tack, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Well, I'll tell you what, the, the Bridges to Life program, it is an it's an amazing organization. Like I said, we've graduated 80,000 offenders. The recidiv- you know, Baylor University has tracked a bunch of our graduates, and the recidivism rate for our graduates is substantially lower than the state. So this program is changing lives. Yeah. And when these men and women get out of prison and they go back to their families, you know, it could be a generational thing. Hey, dad has changed. Mm-hmm. So now this kid's not going to go to prison because he's following his dad's lead. Right. Instead of following him downhill, he's following him uphill. Because a lot of kids that have a, a father in prison will end up, oh, absolutely. In, I mean, yeah, they much higher rate. Yeah, absolutely. So making those changes. And I guess if I'm endorsing Bridges to Life, we, you know, there's three ways that you can help Bridges to Life. One of them is volunteer. And the other one is uh, we do that fundraiser every year, yep. you know, and it's coming up November 2nd. So, okay. you know, if anybody wants to go to my website, I keep saying my, like I own this thing, our website, <laughs> Bridges to Life, it's bridgestolife.org, and it shows all our reading, but that's on there. You know, we sell tables at the, and it's an amazing event. We do it at Trinity Fellowship every year, and it's usually catered by young blood, so it's okay. good food. We get a Bridges to Life graduates that get up and tell testimonies about how this program changed their lives. And then we get a one of my victim speakers always speaks at the fundraiser too. But then another way you can help Bridges to Life, it's a volunteer, you know, financially or prayer. And another thing, and I, I hate to even throw this out there, but victims of crime, victims get healing by sharing their story. And you know how hard it is for somebody that's been through something horrific to step into a maximum security prison oh, yeah. and tell that story. But every time they do, they say, I can't believe the healing I got out of doing that. You know, I had one lady that son got killed and she said that I've been through counseling. I've been to all this different stuff. And this is the first time that people weren't trying to fix me. My son was fixing them. Hmm. I mean, that that's a powerful statement. So, yeah, you can volunteer, be a victim speaker, or, you know, help out financially or keep us on your prayer list. All right. Yeah. Tag Buchanan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Tack for the interview. Uh, you can learn more about Bridges to Life at bridgestolife.org. 
Thanks also to Attorney Dean Boyd, to Leslie Massey's Farmers Insurance Office, to Shimon Dental and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'm just so grateful that all of you are here and that you listen to the end of the show while I'm reading the credits. Hey Amarello exists on a weekly basis because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarello. And this can be you if you want to do it. Hey Amarello's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Barbara and Jim Witten, and Cindy Graham. This has been episode 320. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>